This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Joshua Lucy, a physician assistant in primary care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Health can sometimes be an, quite an ambiguous term. So how do we really consider somebody healthy? Is it when patients subjectively feel healthy? Is it when all their health maintenance tasks are met in our electronic medical records? I really think there's many different answers to this question. And me personally, as a fan of quotes, I absolutely love the World Health Organization's definition of health. And this reads, health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Taking this definition into account, I think it addresses the importance of individualized whole person care. And sometimes patients don't really inform us of what problems or difficulties that they may be facing in their lives. And this really makes it difficult for us to be able to help them in these situations. For that, sometimes we must ask patients specific questions or use screening questionnaires and attempt to make sure that they are truly okay. And one such example that we may screen for in these instances is the topic of intimate partner violence. This condition has many presentations and can affect truly anybody. And the types of abuse one may experience in these situations includes several different types. One being physical abuse, there's emotional and verbal abuse, sexual abuse, sexual coercion, where one feels obligated to perform sex acts, reproductive coercion, where a partner loses their ability to control their own reproductive system, financial abuse, digital abuse, where one uses technology to bully, harass, intimidate, or control their partner, and stalking. Intimate partner violence or domestic violence is reported to be a serious, preventable public health concern as it affects more than 32 million Americans. It has also been reported that exposure to such violence during childhood can have negative effects on a child's developing brain, which results in a long-term adverse consequences. This can negatively impact their physical health, mental health, and mortality as adults. Today, we are joined by Dr. Cesar Gonzalez. Cesar is an assistant professor of both psychology and family medicine and is board certified in clinical psychology and serves as the clinical director of our transgender and intersex specialty care clinic. He completed his research and clinical fellowship program focused on human sexuality at the University of Minnesota, where he trained in areas of transgender health, sex and relationship therapy, and the treatment of problematic sexual behaviors. Thank you for joining us today, Cesar. Thank you for having me. And today we're also joined by Dr. Miriam Mahmood. Miriam is an assistant professor of medicine and is our current chair of our HIV focus group at our Rochester campus. She holds clinical interest in HIV, STIs, transplant infectious disease, and immune compromised host. She completed her medical training at the University of Auckland, New Zealand, and later completed her residency training at Reading Hospital, Pennsylvania. And she then completed her fellowship at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota in infectious disease. Thank you for joining us today, Miriam. Thank you for having me, Josh. So Caesar, this is quite a somber topic, but I think it's really important that we bring this up because it's not something that I think we see too much in our practices. Do you mind taking the lead here and explaining what really is intimate partner violence? Is this more than just a bickering or an argument between two people in a relationship? Absolutely. It is more than just bickering or an argument. Bickering and the argument can be a sign of more to come, especially as there's further development of tension within a relationship. But typically, intimate partner violence, it's it's an established pattern. It's an established pattern of what I like to refer to as subjugation, of really being dominated, controlled. That really also includes either physical, sexual, psychological, social, or financial subjugation. So meaning that it involves the action of bringing someone to domination and controlling them for power and, and control. So ultimately, intimate partner violence is about control and power, but it is more than for sure bickering and small arguments. 
And Beezer, you mentioned like this topic of power and control. It doesn't seem like a natural thing to happen right out the gate. Is there knowledge psychologically why this happens? Do we know like why those individuals kind of seek this or how, how that develops in, in the perpetrator's kind of mind? Absolutely. There's actually recent research which suggests that resentment has something to do with, with intimate partner violence. But at the root of this is also oftentimes histories of observing uh, physical abuse, either in families structures or being the victim of bullying in grade school, high school also. It's this feeling of, of injustice, of feeling like I got the short end of the stick and therefore I deserve more. But of course, we know that this is multifactorial, that it's just not one internal factor or one external factor explaining this. It's multiple factors that come together to really manifest into what is known as intimate partner violence. For example, we know that individuals coming from lower social economic status or with lower educational backgrounds are at higher risk for perpetuating intimate partner violence. We also know that when there's discrepancies in terms of power dynamics and relationships, intimate relationships, that that also is another risk factor. We also know that those daily stressors can sometimes accumulate. They accumulate so much on top of other stressors related to finances. Then you bring in your own history of observing physical abuse or being bullied, and, and it can really exacerbate these symptoms. So Remember, this is also not just about the impact that intimate partner violence has on the individual perpetrating, but also on the survivor themselves, their families, their communities, and interestingly enough, generations that are to come. We know that intergenerational trauma and the, the lessons that we transmit to our children are also a part of this. There might be some evidence, too, in terms of the interplay with genetics and intergenerational trauma as well. But something that is definitely impacting not the just the two individuals, but communities and families and even institutions. We even think about this in terms of empathy-based stressors amongst clinicians and who hear about intimate partner violence. That is also very stressful for, for clinicians themselves. Caesar, I like that you clarified that this is really not a topic of just one person. It's a per perpetuator, victim, and, and then those around them. But sticking within that perpetrator and victim dichotomy, on the side of the perpetrator, why do you think these individuals resort to this behavior, especially in the topic of intergenerational trauma? Because I imagine these individuals did not like that, experiencing those things growing up. So why do you think that they feel the need, if they've simply just observed this, to continue that. They had a feeling of this is not pleasant. Why psychologically do they mirror that? One of the roots is this concept of emotional regulation, being able to emotionally regulate your internal feelings and thoughts so that you don't externalize them onto others. So typically the research really suggests that there are difficulties maintaining impulse control and also intentionally really exerting that physical power onto others to get one's own needs met. Granted that this is a maladaptive strategy that doesn't mm -hmm. work out in the long term, but it, in the immediacy though, it does serve the purpose of meeting the perpetrator's needs, whether it is to feel uh, not isolated, 
or whether it, if it is to feel better than someone else. There's multiple reasons. Sometimes it is about untreated ADHD. Sometimes it is about untreated mania. But oftentimes there's just more of a historical context to the intimate partner violence that is present. And Caesar, uh, good good to bring up untreated conditions psychologically. Is this sometimes you think the face of other psychological illnesses? And in addition to what you said, to kind of bring up some like intermittent explosive disorder or borderline personality disorder, would you call someone exerting those behaviors just those conditions, such as is, are those behaviors just representative of borderline personality disorder or just intermittent explosive disorder or untreated ADHD? Or is it that plus intimate partner violence? Yep. So overarching all of this is what we call externalizing behaviors or symptoms. And that's why we don't focus in on, is this, is this just intermittent explosive disorder or is this mania or, cause this can really look the same depending upon what condition we're talking about. But at the core, the fact is that you're externalizing to others what's inside. And that is really the focus. And that can include intermittent explosive disorder, but it can also be more situational. I mean, someone can engage in intimate partner violence without ever being diagnosed with bipolar disorder or intermittent explosive disorder. It can be associated with antisocial personality disorder as well. But oftentimes, I think the main message here is that this is transdiagnostic feature that can tap into a multiple conditions, and it also may not be something that's exclusively diagnosed. And I think that's really the important part, because otherwise, what we then do is we just hone in on individuals that have a certain diagnosis, and then we don't focus in on screening those individuals who don't come in with a diagnosis, right? Right. That's important to take into consideration. Totally agree, Caesar. And now kind of shifting gears to like the other side in terms of the victim of the intimate partner violence. Is this what you think we're truly screening for? Like, do you think when we screen for this in our practices, are we screening for perpetrators? Are we screening for victims? Are we screening for both? In the ideal world, I think we should be screening for both. Right. We know that there are interventions that can help both sides. We also know that, for example, with the victims, the survivors, that it often takes about seven attempts to leave a relationship before the individual actually leaves the unhealthy relationship. So there are multiple points that you as a clinician will be involved in this individual's life. And and you may be only one of those points, but you're one of those seven time points that may have influenced that person to lead the relationship or to seek resources or to to help out. And remember, it comes back to this idea that this is about power and control and power dynamics. So for example, this can be about the individual not being ready, not because they're not ready, but because there is someone else that maybe depends on the financial resources that their partner might bring Or it can be about, well, I can go to the shelter, but I can't bring my animal companion with me. So I'm going to decide to stay there, especially because I'm so attached to my dog. Mm -hmm. Or, well, if I leave, how are my kids going to suffer from this? Mm -hmm. Or how am I going to be able to go to my job. Or if I leave, I know that that individual may exacerbate the the symptoms and I need to make sure that I'm able to keep my own livelihood intact. So I'm just going to continue to tolerate this and stay in this relationship. Or 
it's going to get better. And so we have to keep in mind, though, that this can be a life or death situation. And there are predictors to some of this, too. We know, for example, if there's strangulation involved, that the risk of death prospectively is significant. If the violence has escalated in the past year, we know that that significantly increases the risk of being the victim of homicide. If there's substance use, for example, we, we know that that significantly increase, increases the, the risk of death as well. Substance use for the perpetrator or the victim? It can be for both. Both. Okay. Absolutely. This is a really tough situation. And it's quite confusing, I think, for everyone involved, because I don't think anybody enters a relationship expecting this. How does this turn into this? In the beginning of a relationship, I think there's a lot of love, a lot of trust, companionship. How does it go from that? to something like this, regardless of their past? There's multiple pathways to this. One is we're comfortable with what we know. So if you come from an environment or the, the perpetrator comes from an environment where there was a lot of physiological arousal related to violence and abuse, that's going to feel very normative and, and comfortable. The other piece is that there are cognitive biases that play a role here too. So for example, confirmation bias of this individual is a he or she, they're really great person. We have to keep in mind that this affects all genders, not solely women. It also impacts men as well as trans and gender diverse people. And so when we talk about intimate partner violence, we're not solely saying violence towards women, which it is, and it's actually a higher proportion of violence is towards women. But we also have to recognize, because it does impact our screening behaviors, that it also impacts men as well, whether that's cisgender men or transgender men. We have to be aware of that. So what we also know is that there are cognitive biases, which really tell us this person is a loving individual, or it can even stem from isolation or lack of self-esteem. If you think that I'm unlovable and someone is paying attention to you despite of how they treat you, it's for many individuals, it can be something is, is better than, than nothing. And that's a really sad situation. Often it's because individuals are emotionally deprived and they want companionship and they feel like there are no other options. Again, they're unlovable or they need someone in their lives who's going to be more assertive. But unfortunately, that assertiveness maybe was more of a mask for more hyper assertiveness or, or more hyper masculine like mm. behaviors. Mm. So really, gender roles does play a role here. So we often see this in terms of media as well, right? We think about individuals who are protecting their partner, and we really, really like to see that in other people. But then that can easily escalate to being overly jealous and then looking over someone's phone to see what they're doing. And then it can lead to isolation. And if there's ever any time when they feel threatened by the person's behavior, then they might start to exert physical, financial, emotional, psychological, social dominance. And Caesar, I think you mentioned screening men and women in the situation and all kind of all genders, but I think it's also important to mention, although it's outside of the concept of intimate partners, this also spills over and affects the children of that situation. Would you agree screening children in this is also an appropriate thing? Yes. And then we get into the realm of domestic violence. So right. intimate partner violence, domestic violence. In reality, we're talking about violence in all of these situations. And really screening for violence is important. And, and violence, remember, isn't just about what's done to you, but it's also what's been taken away from you, mm. right? I can dominate someone if what they really cherish 
if I threaten them by removing that item that I really cherish. Mm. I'm going to do something to your family. I'm going to do something to your pet. I'm going to do something to your children. And, and that can have just as much power over someone as physically doing something to them. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. Also, we, we often forget stalking behavior. Stalking from previous partners is something really significant. And the interesting thing is that the majority of this starts around adolescence in regards to a teen dating. As clinicians, we are charged with the responsibility of asking these questions to adolescents. As young as 12 and 13, when you'll start to date, do you feel safe in your relationships? This is really, really critical. This is a this is where it starts. We have to teach people what are healthy relationships about? What do they look like? We have to not make assumptions about who might be at risk for violence. Part of my role as a behavioral science faculty here in our family medicine residency is to directly observe our residents interacting with their patients in the exam room. And I recall a situation once where, and it's actually very diagnostic, there was a couple coming in and the body language of the couple, you could see it in their expression of this was a cis heterosexual couple and they were in the exam room and he would respond for the patient and the resident at one point asked to meet with the patient by herself. You could see the, the immediate reaction of this is not what he wanted, but this nonetheless happened. And there was disclosure about not feeling safe. We had to immediately kind of bring back everyone and, and give the appearance of everything's okay. And then we actually had to involve the nurse team member to talk about a follow-up mm. vaccine, to isolate them, to come up with some sort of plan. But again... This was an individual that we would have never, by stereotypically just observing them, think that they would ever fall into a category of being the victim of intimate partner violence, yet they were. And so learning not to fall into those biases is really, really critical. And remember, this intimate partner violence transcends genders, socioeconomic status. Yes, there's data that it's it's those with lower socioeconomic status, but We've seen it across all social economic and educational backgrounds. Cesar, thank you for sharing that that situation. I'm glad the team was able to recognize that and screen it. And would you recommend like a routine way to screen for the primary care provider just so they can have like that tool in their toolbox? What is the best way to bring that up? Is there a specialized questionnaire that we give people? What would you say is the preferred way to look into this? There are definitely specialized questionnaires out there. There's data that suggests that a questionnaire versus clinician administered, there's no differences, oh. um, which is really something to kind of consider. The, mm -hmm. the one other aspects too is considering, well, if you are administering a questionnaire, how is that being administered? What is the process? Is it is it when they're in the lobby? Well, what, who's going to be there in the lobby with them? Is it, can they complete the questionnaire on their own on their phone? What does that look like? But I would say that for in-person, making sure that you structure the, the visit recognize and and really set up the the scenario to where there is privacy in place that you are only interviewing that one individual imagine asking the the question of if you feel safe in a relationship when there's a partner in the room you're that is going to be an invalid question during your your information gathering stage but one of the things that I really like to reinforce when assessing this verbally is really to frame it to say I ask all of my patients, 
all of these questions. I also know that I know data around intimate partner violence. I know that one in three women, and you can say one in three men, usually though it's even more, have experienced physical violence, contact or sexual violence or stalking. And it's important to me to understand whether you've had any of these experiences mm. in the past or currently. And that can be an easy segue in. Now, the most important thing about this is not just screen to screen. If it screens positive, then what do you do with that bit of information? Exactly. And you have to also be mindful of trauma-informed interactions and making sure that you don't re-victimize the individual by saying, oh, well, that doesn't sound like it was violent or, mm -hmm. oh, it sounds like it's just a, a, an argument, an argument, right? Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and really making sure that you're, you're very attuned to your own reaction. Now, if you as a clinician have experienced trauma or intimate partner violence, you have to yeah. make sure that you're also prepared for that space too. Right. Because sometimes our desires to avoid those conversations might kick in. And so being very much prepared. I think that's important. Miriam, what about you and your practice? Is this something that you're, you see? Is this something you're screening for? Or, or how, would, how does it look where you work? Yeah, so for sure. So the majority of my outpatient work is in the HIV clinic where we're blessed to have excellent social workers and case managers. So they have great intuition for intimate partner violence, where people are vulnerable in relationships in various ways and great at screening for that. We're lucky that as clinicians, we just get to hop on their train and go from there. We have the same strategies in our clinic in that we will separate out partners where we sense that there's something not quite right or there's intimidation or someone doesn't feel comfortable. And we'll use things like we want to talk to you separately about this vaccine or fill out these forms, etc. So let's separate out into different rooms for a moment while one person gets one thing done and one person gets another thing done. So there's ways to address this from our perspective that we can, you know, we do the similar screening strategies to what Cesar mentioned. But I actually have a question for Cesar. You know, you mentioned that seven moments or times where people will attempt to leave before they actually do. Are there any strategies or interventions that we can use as clinicians that are going to be impactful in helping people really get there? Yes, a lot of times it's actually the relationship that you have and really expressing and manifesting the fact that you care. If the patient themselves feels like you actually are invested and you are asking the question because you really care, that is going to significantly augment the power of those questions. Now, keep in mind that there's still life after helping someone with leaving a relationship. There's still the, the residual effects of the hypervigilance, the trauma, right? Potential depression. Mm -hmm. There's still the legal issues around having to navigate custody battles or concern for stalking behaviors. There's also the the issues around using children as as tools for manipulation if there is our children involved. It's a whole process. And you can almost think of it in terms of the stages of change, right? So it's like mm -hmm. stages of pre-contemplation, contemplation, and then preparation. You're helping that patient along those seven time points move from pre-contemplation to contemplation, preparation all the way to action, but not just action, but also maintenance. So keeping that individual relationship intact is so critical. And that's why the relationship that they establish with primary care is so impactful. And I want to make sure that we're really reinforcing that relationship. You may be the only individual in that person's life 
that may believe them or the, where they don't feel like they have a stake for the other person. And remember, when a person decides to leave a relationship like this, they're not just leaving the person, they're leaving that person's family who may have actually been a positive influence, right? Mm -hmm. Or the friendship structures that you created with them. So there's multiple moving parts. And again, the the one number one thing is having someone who's non-judgmental who really can convey a sense of warmth and understanding of true investment in that person. That's the number one thing. And you do that by paying attention to them, looking them in the eyes when you're asking this question, right? Using your tone of voice, using your nonverbals, using your paraverbals, the, mm, that was, how can I help you in this situation? I, I don't want this for you. How can I help? What mm. can I do? And helping them understand that there is someone there. That's the number one thing that you can absolutely do. As well as also educate around the fact that those risk factors, for example, strangulation, increased frequency of threatening behaviors, that that can actually lead to death. And that discussion can also help them move along the continuum of change, stages of change. Caesar, very, thank you for that. And just very interested in those seven attempts that takes for someone to leave on average. Now, recognizing that what happens for most people, but for that outlier situation, say somebody's in this situation and we're talking about the victim and they're so crippled, so belittled, feel so low that they're now a whole different person. They don't have confidence anymore to leave if they want to. So in that rare, terrible situation, what can we do to help those individuals? What is the best way to get them to see what's going on and they might already be really aware, but they might feel so darn hopeless and stuck. How can we help? Absolutely. So one is, again, providing that non-judgmental space of never ever saying, I can't believe you're not leaving or right. so never doing any of that or no. ever referring to the violence as alleged violence or anything like that. Yes. So really being present, establishing that relationship. Also on your end, documenting what you see. That is important because there may be in the future where there might need to be legal interventions that really are activated to help protect that individual. In addition, knowing and maybe even having a closer follow-up with that person, I'm concerned about you. Are you okay if we touch base in three weeks? Mm. And our resources for a shelter. Or did you know that there are shelters that also take in pets? Or did you know that there are resources for individuals with children and it doesn't have to be this particular way? Or do you know that we have a team here that helps individuals build safety when planning out leaving a, an unhealthy situation? Mm -hmm. And so you can make it more of a process because the individual also has to prepare Safety planning is also something that you can immediately do. Mm. Now, keep in mind, oftentimes when there is the subjugation that's going on, other individuals are, are going to be very hypervigilant to what that individual is carrying or doing. So, so being aware that sometimes you can help them put in a phone number under a different name, the phone for domestic violence shelters or hotlines. There are some of those resources that you can also do as well. Thank you. And and Miriam, kind of another sobering topic here. We get to the screening and we uncover someone's a victim of intimate partner violence and their partner sexually abused them. And that could maybe indicate a sign of kind of rape. What is our role in those situations? Like, what do you think are the next best steps to undertake from an infectious disease standpoint? And then Caesar, interested in later hearing from you from a psychological standpoint in that situation. Miriam, I think we'll, we'll start with you. What do you think? Sure. 
So, you know, the first step for us is always assessing safety and how they're coping with all of this. That's incredibly important. So that's really important. We can talk about what to do after sexual assault and talk about what HIV testing to get, offer HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. We can talk about administering STI prophylaxis or preventive treatment, which we mm. should do for all sexual assault victims, getting a pregnancy test for people who have the potential to get pregnant, and if negative, offering them emergency contraception. So these are all key parts of sort of the medical aspects of care. But I think Cesar's input here is really key. We can assess at a basic level as a clinician for safety. And if they're vulnerable, we have reporting requirements is one thing. So that's something to keep in mind. If this is a vulnerable adult or a child, then this is a very different scenario. Yes. But otherwise, it's really safety and how they're coping and I'll let Cesar comment. Yeah, and before we hear from him too, you mentioned STI prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. What medicines should we be giving in those situations for STI yeah. prophylaxis? Just giving them from as soon as yep. they report so, it to us? Yeah, so in contrast to PrEP or consensual sex acts post-exposure prophylaxis, yep. for non-consensual sex acts, we recommend just giving STI treatment slash prophylaxis. It's typically ceftriaxone, an intramuscular injection, doxycycline, and metronidazole. They don't want an injection or alternatives are available, but we mm. would suggest that. And again, emergency contraception should be offered as well. So Caesar, from a psychological perspective, what do you think we sh that situation should unfold like? Yeah, I think for sure the basic needs of, of physical care is really important. That physical nurturance, making sure that their physical needs are met, the sense of, of safety, the provision of understanding that there's processes in place that can support them, such as victim advocate hotlines and supports. There are individuals that can help walk them through the sexual assault nurse examiner process, and they don't have to do it alone is really critical to understand and making sure that the same process, the sexual assault nurse examiner process is also really culturally congruent with the population or the person that you're seeing. Because mm. if you don't have the language, then that is not going to convey much credibility to the individual and they can pull out at any time throughout that process. And that can be such an invasive process to go through. And, and just being aware that we have to not only work individually as a clinician, but also make sure that our systems are in place to really support the process of not further traumatizing and victimizing the individual and perpetuating some of those assaults or microaggressions that they already are experiencing. I think that's important. The other thing is recognizing that this is all a process. And that there oftentimes isn't going to be one sole thing that is going to save or significantly impact. It's, it's a mixture of all these processes coming together that sends a message that we are here for you and you are safe and there are resources to help you get out of this situation. And especially understanding and providing those legal resources and also pro bono services, legal services that can help individuals too, because this also involves legal health afterwards too. Caesar, what are the probably like your top resources you think to include in these situations? Like what should everyone be aware of? Absolutely. There are, every state has their own victim advocacy hotline. So that's one that I would definitely encourage people to, to have in, in their list of resources. The other one is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. It's RAIN, and you can look that up on Google, and they have resources there, which essentially would, that is one of the two go places 
And depending upon the context of the sexual abuse, there's a lot of shame. For example, with survivors of incest, there's a lot of shame in that. And they would rather not talk about that at all whatsoever. But knowing and, and really being understanding to those situations and having readily those resources is critical. The other resource, I think, is the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. That's, that's another one that I would really, really recommend. And then within each state, there's a lot of nonprofits that you can look up. But mm. for sure, I would say the RAIN and then the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence would be some excellent resources that would help you find those local resources. Caesar and Miriam, thank you so much for the time on this topic. Is there some good key points you think that our listeners should really just take away from this? What should they really remember from this talk? From my perspective, it's when you're in that clinical mode to activate the part of you that led you to be where you are, that part of you that says, thank you for sharing this with me. How can I help you? Just that very humanistic principle that drove you to be where you are as a clinician to activate that part of you I think is so strong and to never underestimate how powerful and empowering that can be for the individual how the validation of another human being and most of us are very fortunate to have that validation in our in our workplaces day in but there are some people that are emotionally deprived that they don't have that outside of the health provider clinician relationship Mm. And never underestimating just how empowering you can be as a clinician, I think, is is critical. Thank you, Caesar and Miriam. Any final thoughts on the topic that for our listeners to take home? I think Caesar covered it nicely. Totally agree. Well, goodness, thank you both so 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 much for this your time on this topic. It's very sobering, but very necessary to bring up and make sure we can help our patients in all walks of life to optimize their overall health, wellness, and welfare. And for our listeners, thank you so much. We've been talking about intimate partner violence with Dr. Gonzalez and Dr. Mahmood from our Mayo Clinic Rochester campus. Caesar Merriam, again, thank you so so much for your time today. If you have enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your favorite podcasting app or visit us online at ce.mayo.edu. Until next time, this is Josh Lucy for the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. Have a great day, everybody. Mm -hmm.